Act One of Intimate Strangers by Booth Tarkington. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Dramatis Personae The Station Master, read by Alan Mapstone. William Ames read by todd isabel stewart read by matea bracic florence read by jen broda johnny white read by adrian stevens henry read by wayne cook aunt ellen read by avai matty read by sonia stage directions read by michelle eaton the intimate strangers act one scene the rise of the curtain discloses a darkness complete except for an oblong of faintly luminous blue this is a large window and one or two stars are seen through the upper panes after a moment a door upright is opened and a man enters carrying a lantern he pushes a switch button near the door and two bulbs shaded by green painted tin come to life right centre two other bulbs left centre take on similar life simultaneously these lights hang by wires from the ceiling the interior revealed is that of a small railway station a way station at an obscure junction in the country the walls are wainscoted in wood to a height of four feet above that is plaster painted a tan brown in the right wall halfway up is the ticket window with a little shelf the up and down sliding in a panel of the window closed up to this in right wall is a door in the back wall upright is another door that which has admitted the man with the lantern centre in the rear wall is the window there is a stove left with a pipe running to the left wall the only decorations are some printed posters giving notice of changes in train schedules a navy recruiting poster a warning concerning forest fires a penny in the slot weighing machine against the rear wall and no smoking there is a clock on right wall it has stopped at 17 minutes after six. The furniture consists of four or five wooden benches with iron legs, the feet screwed to the floor. These benches are set in rigid rows facing front, one straight behind the other. Upon the front one is seen a small lunch basket, closed but not strapped, and a very small thermos bottle several travelling bags a couple of guns in cases and a trout fishing outfit are there also the man with the lantern is the station master ticket agent telegraph operator baggage man and janitor but he wears no uniform except a cap he is elderly and smooth shaven his clothes are elderly too though not shabby a dark old overcoat with the collar turned up. His rubber boots are heavy with muddied clay and his trousers are tucked into the tops of them. 
He goes casually near the clock, looks at it, grunts thoughtfully, goes outright, returns with a plain wooden seated chair, once painted yellow, places it under the clock. He moves the hands around to 10.24, consulting his watch as he does so. Then he winds the clock. As the winding begins, there is the sound of an annoyed yawn from the apparently empty benches. A man has been lying at full length on the bench, second from front, and until now, as he slowly sits up, has been invisible. He is somewhere in the early forties, but not yet well-preserved looking. People of sixty would speak of him as a young man. People of sixteen would, of course, think him of an advanced age. He is urban, intelligent-looking, a man of the world, very attractive. His clothes are of an imported texture, pleasant for travel, and he has on a soft hat and a lightweight overcoat. The station master, having wound the clock, looks at him. Been asleep, I expect. Gets down from chair. Ames passing a gloved hand over his eyes. Oh, I have not. He looks at the station master drowsily. Hmm, you're, you aren't the same one, are you? He states this as an interesting discovery. It is not a question. I'm not the same one what? You aren't the same station master that was here this afternoon. He ain't no station master. He's my brother-in-law. Starts with chair. Oh. He just spelled me today. I was teaming. I thought he seemed to be an amateur. Station master moving right with the chair to return it to the room off right. How? He means, what did you say? He seemed bashful. About giving any information, I mean. Information? He ain't got no information to give. Never did have. He struck me in that light, particularly about trains. Well, right tonight, I ain't much better myself. The wires are all down after them storms. The bridge at Millersville washed out on one road, and there was a big freight smash on the other one. My brother-in-law says he told you that much. Yes, he did tell me that much. Well, the Lord Almighty couldn't tell you much more till them wires start working again. He moves to go off right with the chair, then turns back. Where'd you say you was aiming to get to? Well, New York, eventually. I have a place there with a bed in it. And food. New York? You gotta get from here down to Uckety first, then change for Albany. Yes, I know, I know. I made a mistake in coming round by this junction. I ought to have walked. Station Master with a short laugh. I reckon you'd have got there pretty near as soon, maybe. These here hurricanes got train service in this whole section just about disorganized. They say it's sunspots. I don't know if tis or not, though. 
exits right with his chair. Ames rises and goes to the window. He looks out toward left. After a moment, he goes to the door upright, opens it. Steps just outside the door, but remains in view. Then speaks to someone invisible and apparently at a little distance off left. Ames hesitating. Uh, don't you think this is pretty foolish? He waits a moment for an answer. None is heard. He speaks louder. I say, I think this is, uh, don't you think yourself this is pretty foolish? Uh, I'm sure you can hear me, you know. He waits again. Ah. Uh. He seems about to address further remarks to the invisible person, but decides not to do so, and with a somewhat baffled and puzzled air, comes in, closes the door, sits on first bench, murmuring rather crossly. Well, all right. Moves lunch basket a little centre of bench. The station master returns from the room off right. He speaks as he enters. Nary a single click from my telegraph instrument. He refers to room off right. Then he comes over and looks at the luggage on the front bench. See you been gunning. What? See you been fishing and gunning up in the woods. Yes. I've been up at a lodge in the woods. That's how I happen to be here. Getting out of the woods. Station Master examining the guns. Have any luck? No. If you'd have shot anything or caught any fish, you'd have done well by yourself to bring it along. You could have built a fire and cooked it anyways. Ames, roused to earnestness. See here, your brother-in-law told me there was absolutely no food in this neighborhood. He was right, they ain't. But, my lord, the people in this neighborhood have to live on something. Ain't no people in this neighborhood except me and my brother-in-law's families. Well, even you and your brother-in-law have to eat, don't you? My hens ain't laying. Sits on front bench center. We got just three eggs in two days from seventeen hens. I suppose you used all three eggs. Station master with a dry laugh. I suppose we did among seven children. We had nine potatoes left and about four slices of bacon. That's all we had for supper. And we won't have no breakfast at all unless the northbound train gets through. April's an awful scanty month in this country, and I expect supplies today myself. You ain't the only one them sunspots been fooling with. I suppose that's as good an explanation as any for a train over eleven hours late. Sunspots. Station Master looking in the lunch basket. Why, you got food there right now. Good food. One chicken sandwich and one hard-boiled egg. Left over from a light lunch. A very light lunch. Well, why don't you eat it? It isn't mine. Pushes basket to station master. 
Oh. He nods, glances up, off left, and nods again, as if understanding. Well, waiting for trains does get people kind of pettish with each other. Rises and moves right, glances off left. I noticed your wife still is sitting on that baggage truck out yonder. She isn't my wife. Oh, your lady, I mean. She's still sitting out yonder, I see. Ames, rather bothered, shakes his head, mutters. She isn't my lady. He gets up and goes to the window. Well, excuse me. My brother-in-law, he took her and you for married. Ames comes down left. He told me you and her had kind of a spat just before he left here this evening. But, of course, a man's got a right to quarrel with other women, well as his wife. Ames, slightly annoyed with himself for being annoyed by this report of the station master's brother-in-law. Uh, the, the, uh, lady and I were hardly, uh, quarrelling. To tell you the truth. Crosses left. My brother-in-law ain't got sense enough to tell the difference between a couple that's quarrelling and a couple that's just kind of starting to make up to each other. Sits left end of front bench. The lady and I weren't doing either. I never saw her before I got on the train this morning. Well, that often happens. I've known plenty of perfectly respectable people to do it too. You might say it's nature. What is? Why, for strange couples to get talking to each other, and all so on, on a train. I didn't speak to this lady on the train. He goes up left and comes right down again. In fact, we didn't speak to each other till we'd been moping about this godforsaken station for an hour. Then, as there wasn't anything else in the world in sight but mud, and your brother-in-law... And she didn't need to guess very hard to guess I was hungry. She offered to share her lunch basket with me, and we naturally got to talking. Well, sir, a person can get mighty well acquainted with anybody in about ten hours talking. We haven't been talking for the last two hours. Got acquainted at noon and quit speaking already. Rises chuckles. Oh, no. She still speaks. At least she nodded to show me that she heard me the last time I spoke to her. He is grimly humorous here, but does not smile. Well, sir, it's funny. Some people don't more than say howdy do. They can't neither of them hardly stand a word the other one says. Crosses right. I should think she'd be chilly out there by this time, though. Ames looks at the station master earnestly. You seem to be a man of unusual experience. Unusual? I guess if you think that, you ain't married. Ames muttering. No, and not likely to be. Look out, mister. No man in a spat with a lady ain't safe. Where's she bound for? I think she said a station about thirty or forty miles from here. Amity. Amity? She's worse off than you are. No, that's impossible. 
Amity's on the branch line. Everything's blown to hell down that way. Creaks over the rails and all. Isn't there any way of getting a motor car? Rises. Not with the telephone lines down like they are. I don't reckon no car could get through them roads neither. Yeah, so your brother-in-law said. A clicking is heard off right. Isn't that your telegraph instrument? Indicating right. Station master jumping up. So tis. Going right. That means they got the wire up again at Logan's station. Well, now we'll see what's what, maybe. Exits right, leaving the door open. The telegraph instrument can be heard clicking. Ames listens at the open door. Right a moment. Then he goes to the door upright, opens it and speaks off as before. I think you'd better come in now, Miss Stewart. In response, a thrillingly lovely voice is heard, though the words are not necessarily discernible. However, what Miss Stewart says is, I'm quite comfortable here, thank you. I really think you'd better come in. There may be some news of your train, or mine. This seems to mean more to Miss Stewart than have his previous appeals. Her voice is heard again. Oh, she is evidently approaching. Well, that's better. Do come in and be sensible. Her voice is heard once more before she appears. A faint amusement and protest are audible in it. Sensible, my dear sir. He holds the door open for her as she appears and comes down. Then he follows. She is of a lovely and charming presence. One is aware of that instantly, though she is pretty thoroughly muffled in furs and veils. And one becomes even more aware of it as she pushes up the veil from her face as she comes in. A muff is held in her left hand. My dear sir, I think maybe I could be more sensible if the news turns out to be of my train. Could you stand its being about my train instead of yours, Mr. Ames? Comes down right. She has gone toward the lunch basket. If mine came first, you'd be relieved of me. At upper end of benches left. Yes, so I should. She lifts the lid of the lunch basket, closed by the station master. Oh, you haven't eaten the sandwich, nor the egg, either. As if in reproachful surprise. Certainly not. Comes down left. Miss Stewart, lifting a hard-boiled egg from the basket daintily in a gloved hand. Didn't you even nibble at it? She looks at him, not at the egg. I did not. Are you sure? I'm not in the habit of nibbling things. Miss Stewart with a hint of suspicion and severity. You're sure? I knew a bishop once who used to steal little bits of icing off icing cakes. He'd slip out in the kitchen on baking days when no one was looking, and then he'd deny it. I'm not a bishop, please. How could I tell? I've only known you. She glances at the clock. Ten hours and thirty-some minutes, and this is the first time you've mentioned that you're not a bishop. Why didn't you eat the egg? You know perfectly well why I didn't. 
But I thought you would if I left you alone with it. I've left you alone with it on purpose two hours. I'm afraid you're stubborn. More personalities? Well, doesn't the question of what one eats have to be rather personal? I think you made it personal when you lost your temper. When I lost my temper? Ho, ho, ho. But you did. Coming toward her. You lost your temper and declined to sit in the same room with me. Rather than do that, you went out in the night air and sat two hours on a baggage truck. Turns away to left. Please listen, Mr. Ames. Your name is Ames, isn't it? There is a stronger hint of humour in her voice. You seem to have no doubt of it before you lost your... Mr. Ames, let's put it this way. I lost your temper. As for me, it seems at least you ought to distinguish between a loss of temper and a sense of injury. Yes, I had a sense of injury. When we found there was only one egg and one sandwich left for dinner and no other food in reach, I said... You distinctly said it wouldn't be enough for two. Yes, that's what I distinctly said. It really isn't enough for one, is it? Need I explain again? I had no intention of asking to share it with you. No, don't explain again. When I said there wasn't enough for two, I meant... It was yours, and you meant you wanted it all, naturally. Miss Stewart indignantly. Oh! What I minded was your thinking I expected any of it. When I said there wasn't enough for two, I meant I expected to eat all of it, did I? Why, of course. Miss Stewart, after drawing an indignant breath, puts egg in basket. Now, before I go out for two hours more on the baggage truck, will you please ask that man if there is any news of my train? Certainly. Thank you. Don't mention it. Goes to door right and speaks off. What do they wire you about? Station master, voice off right. Nothing yet about no passenger traffic. Ames turning toward Miss Stewart. He says there's nothing yet. Miss Stewart sinking upon the front bench. Oh. She sighs with exasperation, sits on front bench. You said there was news. There will be in a few minutes, now the wire's working. Well, do you still pretend not to understand? Understand what? Comes down right. That of course I meant men need more sustenance than women, and of course when I said there wasn't enough food for two, I meant I didn't want any. That is, I did want it, certainly, but I wouldn't touch it because, because you're a man and ought to have it all. Ames, in an earnestly interested voice. Do you honestly mean that? He sits on the bench right of Miss Stewart, looking at her with great earnestness. Why, of course. Are you serious? Why, of course I'm serious. You really wanted me to eat it all? Certainly. I thought you were warning me. Your hospitality was over when it came to one egg and one sandwich. Miss Stewart glancing at the clock. Ten hours and thirty-seven minutes. You certainly ought to know me well enough to understand better than that. You honestly mean I ought to eat it all because I'm a man? Of course. 
It hurts a man a great deal more not to indulge himself than it does a woman. When there's only a little of anything, it ought to always be given to the man. Because he's the more selfish? No, because he has to have his strength. A woman can live on her nerves. So you think the woman ought to give up the food to the man? This is serious on his part, and appears to be serious on hers, though one cannot always be sure when she is serious. There is a mysteriousness about her. We won't really know her for a considerable time. I think she'd better. If she didn't, she might be mistreated. Ames, frowning. So, her unselfishness is only self-preservation, is it? Miss Stewart with a twinkle. No, she wants to preserve them both. If the Indians come, the man will have to do most of the fighting. If the waters rise, he'll have to build a raft. If it gets very chilly... She glances at the stove. He'll have to build a fire. Ames following her glance. It is very chilly. I wonder. He rises and goes to the door right, calls off. How about a fire in that stove? Station master off right. It's fixed if you want to light it. All right. He crosses to the stove, producing a match which he lights and places within the door of the stove. In a moment, a rosy glow comes from the door of the stove, which opens toward the right. He watches it, and the lady inscrutably watches him. It is a new experience. She loosens her furs as the glow grows stronger from the stove. My lighting a fire for you? Miss Stewart indicating the lunch basket. No. To see a man making such a fuss about eating when he's starving. Ames returning to her, he smiles. Suppose we divide it. You might have thought of that before. I might? Why, it was you that said... Have you a pocket knife with a very clean blade? He hands his knife to her with a blade open. Yes, I thought you looked like a man who would have... I'll do the dividing, and you'll do the choosing. He sits end of bench. She cuts the egg so that the two parts are anything but equal. The smaller part is about a fifth of the egg. She cuts the sandwich in the same uneven way. There, choose. Thanks. He takes the small bit of egg and the tiny fragment of the sandwich. Well, eat them. He does so. His portions vanish as if hardly realised as they pass. Meanwhile, she is cutting the egg and the sandwich again. Ames as he swallows the two small bits together. Thanks. Aren't you? Oh, yes, I'm only... She offers the newly divided portions. Here. Oh, no. I've had my share. <laughs> that was a test to see how you'd choose. Now it's a fair division. No, I really. He takes off his overcoat and sits on the bench near her. Don't let's be ridiculous any more. I imagine neither of us has much right to behave like a child of ten, or nineteen for that matter. Here. She insists upon his taking what she offers. It doesn't seem fair. He accepts what is offered and eats. 
Murder, but I am hungry. And there's still some coffee in the thermos. Didn't you know it? She pours it in the cap cup of the bottle as she speaks, turning the bottle upside down to get the last. No, is there some coffee left? My, my. She puts the cup in his hand. Coffee. Yes, that is lucky. She puts the remaining bit of egg upon the remaining bit of sandwich. Here, this is yours too, to go with the coffee. Eat it. He does so before he thinks. That's it. Oh, lovely. A whole mouthful at once. He finishes the coffee in a gulp, then starts. That was yours. Rises. No, no, it wasn't. Why, it was. He goes back of bench to centre. Have you given me all the coffee, too? He shakes the thermos bottle and turns it upside down. Well, by George, did you do that to escape mistreatment? No, it was just the way I was brought up. Goes left and throws paper napkins, etc. into stove. You were brought up to make a man be selfish? About food, and when he thinks he's sick, yes. That was the old-fashioned way of bringing girls up, wasn't it? I thought that went out a long time ago. It prevailed in my girlhood, you see. Well, that couldn't have been very long ago. Miss Stewart putting the thermos bottle in the basket and closing the lid. She smiles faintly. No. Hasn't the station master any news for us yet? The station master answers for himself, enters right as she speaks, carrying his lantern and a bucket of coal, goes left back of benches and down to stove. Not very good, I reckon. Least not as you'd think. You won't get no train for Amity tonight. Miss Stewart, disturbed, but she has usually somewhere a little humour left for her own misfortune. Not tonight. No, ma'am. And so far as I know, not before noon or maybe three, four, five o'clock in the afternoon tomorrow. Will there be any food in this part of America tomorrow? Station master, pouring some coal into the stove. Not that I know of now. Good gracious. How about my train? Number 21. If she don't get no later, she'll be due by eight or nine in the morning. Is there a diner on her? On uh, number 21? A diner? My gosh. He sets the coal bucket down by the stove with a bang and puts shovel full of coal in stove. Isn't there a buffet? Mister, there's a caboose. That's all. Oh, my. Station master, buttoning his overcoat and moving toward right. There's more coal in yonder if you need it. Miss Stewart looking at him incredulously. Where are you going? She jumps up, continuing instantly. Mr. Ames, you'd better ask him where he's going. Me? Why, you ask me yourself. Where do you think I'm going? I'm going home to bed. You are? Rises. Yes, m. I gotta sleep same as anybody else. 
What? Why, you can't. Why? I ain't got anything more to do round here till just before twenty-one's due. I'll be back by seven-thirty in the morning, though. But this lady, where's she gonna sleep? Station Master, disclaiming responsibility. I couldn't tell you. What about your house? Can't she? Station Master looking at Miss Stewart. In the first place, how would she get through the mud? Shows his boots dried mud to the knee. Why, why, we could take her on a baggage truck. This, he thinks, is a real idea. Miss Stewart graciously. No, thank you. No room for her if she got there. No way to make none, either. What about your brother-in-law's house? About the same as me. Him and his wife and two children's in one room, and the other five children's in the other. No, thank you. Well, but good heavens. Never mind, it's all right. Ames turning back to the station master. Well, but look here. Mister, you can make yourself comfortable enough. It's nice and warm here now. And night duty, when they ain't no trains running, why, that ain't part of my job. I got a heavy day tomorrow, and I need sleep. Good night, lady. He goes out briskly upright. Miss Stewart goes to stove left. Well, good heavens. He goes up nervously, opens the door, steps out and calls after the station master. Listen, you! See here! Station master outside. Good night. But see here. There is no response and after a few moments, Ames closes the door, much disturbed. Miss Stewart stands near the stove, observes him, then laughs faintly. Don't worry about me. I'm an old traveler. We can be comfortable enough. It is warm now. I'll, I'll go take a nap. Later. On the baggage truck. Jerks his head toward up left. How absurd. I nearly froze out there, even in these. Her furs. But what's to be done? Nothing. When railroads break down, passengers can't travel, can they? I ought to be able to think of something to do. Well, for one thing, now that all the officials have gone, I don't think you need to bother about that sign any longer. She points to no smoking. Don't you usually smoke after dinner? She laughs on the word dinner with a glance at the lunch basket and then sits again throwing back her fur coat. Oh, thanks. He brings forth a cigarette case. But that won't be of much use, will it? Well, what else useful can you think of? I can't think of a thing. Neither can I. So... <laughs> she laughs faintly, crosses to left centre, and sits on front bench. So where are your matches? Ames produces a box of matches, then makes a gesture as if to offer her his cigarette case. Ah, uh, do you? Miss Stewart shaking her head. No, I still stick to the way I was brought up. She takes off her heavy coat, not rising. No, 
Is there still an old-fashioned woman left in America? Yes, left is the word, left over. How left over? Old maids are, aren't they? Old bachelors are. That's what I am. Lights his cigarette, adding grimly. An old bachelor, and perhaps an older one than I look, too. A little, that is. What's the matter how many times you've seen the earth go round the sun? That's all we mean when we say a year, isn't it? Our ages ought to be reckoned another way, not in these foolish years. What other way do you suggest? Well, let's call a man as old as he behaves uh, toward a woman. Then how old will you call a woman? As old as she makes men behave toward her. <laughs> well, if I'm as old as I behave nowadays towards women, I'm dead. Miss Stewart, smiling. But what's the matter with the women you know? Ames laughs ruefully and walks about as he speaks. Well, most of those I did know are so married and raising children, I hardly ever see them at all. And I just can't stand the new generation. Yes, there is a new American girl. I've got one myself. Ames, staring. You have? I'm bringing up an orphan niece, or she's bringing me up. It's hard to say which. In fact, I'm bringing up two orphan nieces. She smiles at a thought. Only one of them belongs to the new generation, though. You don't like these new young things, then? Great Lord, no. They smoke and drink and wear men's clothes and short hair and... Well, boys' clothes are better for the outdoor things they do nowadays, aren't they? That may be, but they've given up a great thing to get this new liberty I hear they talk about. What great thing did they give up? Charm. You haven't met a charming one? There aren't any. How can a brazen little hussy in breeches with a flask of homemade gin in her hip pocket have any charm? Ah, but she can, because she has youth, and youth is charm. Don't you care for the youth you see in a young girl? Ames, sitting down by her. I'll tell you what I care for. I care for the graces I used to see in the girls I grew up with. You're sure it wasn't really their youth that gave them the graces? I can show you what I care for. Tomorrow we'll be moving miles and miles apart. Will we? I'm afraid you think more of this railroad system than I do. I'm serious. Probably after tomorrow morning, we'll never see each other again. Why, I feel as if you were my most intimate friend, lifelong. After we finished Italy, wasn't it two hours you talked about religion? What I'm trying to show you... Yes, I forgot. I had a temptation to tell you something that would show you. Why, you could tell me anything. I couldn't stop you. Her gesture indicates the surrounding isolation. Then I will. I'll tell you what I thought about you when I got on that little junk line train this morning. I hadn't expected to see anybody looking like you getting on at one of these way stations. I'm a farmer, you know. I have a farm down near Amity. I've been away to see about a new tenant for part of the land. 
Oh, I don't mean to stop you. Go on. When you got on the train, I thought, there, there's a lady. When these new generation girls get on a train, I usually think, there, there's a rowdy. You must have met some strange ones. I haven't met any. Just hearing and looking at him's enough for me. But when I looked at you, well, I'm going to talk as sentimentally as I feel, just for once in my life. When I looked at you, I caught a, a perfume of sweeter days. Yes, better days than this. And I'll go ahead now I'm started. I'm hungry as a bear, in spite of your giving me all your lunch. And I did feel really cross during our quarrel. But I'm glad the sunspots, he thought it was sunspots, I'm glad they've given me this chance to know you. My dear man, you don't know an earthly thing about me. Oh, yes, I do. There are some people you know all about in a little while. All about? Good gracious. No, not all. You don't know all the lovely things about them. But you do know there aren't any things that aren't lovely. You're one of those transparently perfect things, Miss Stewart. What? Ames rises and goes a little to the right. You are. And that's all there is to it. And only to think of it. Ames turning to her rather sharply. To think of what? So much praise bought by one hard-boiled egg and a sandwich. Well, some of it is for that, if you want to know it. It seemed a little thing, but it showed that when you were hungry yourself, you'd force your last bit of food on a stranger. A stranger? Why, by this time I know you better than I do my most intimate friend, Mr. Ames. Ames sits, then pacing up and down and going on with his thought. I kept looking at you on the train, though you didn't know it. I was brought up always not to know it. I kept looking at you, and I... Miss Stewart quoting him. I said to myself, there's a woman I hate to be cast away in a desert junction with. I said to myself, there's the first woman I've seen in a long time I'd like to know. How long a time? Well, since this new type came in. I'm afraid you wouldn't approve of my niece. If you're bringing her up, I don't believe she'd be the new type. Oh, yes, she is. It doesn't matter who brings them up. They get it from one another. Well, let's forget the new type just now. Miss Stewart, smiling. All right. I'd rather keep to what I feel about you. Miss Stewart, nodding smilingly. Well, keep to it. It began promisingly. Ames coming toward her a little way. I will. I'll speak out. As a man gets older, most of his friends marry off. Or they die off. It's the same thing so far as he's concerned. Yes, I know it is. Well, a man gets pretty lonely. Men always seem to think that's so singular. All I meant to say is... She yawns. It's been a great thing for me to have a woman's companionship for a day. Well, it seems to be going on. I wish. Yes? She conceals a yawn by turning away quickly. She doesn't wish to yawn, 
She is interested, but she is beginning to be really threatened by drowsiness. He does not perceive this, and the symptoms are so far very slight. Of course, you don't know anything about me, except today. I do, a little. How? Why, you said your name was William Ames. I suppose you were the William Berry Ames that the papers say is so remarkable. Remarkable's the word they always use. Ames frowning. I'm not much in newspapers. And isn't it obvious I'm not remarkable? Oh, yes. I've seen it any number of times. Mr. William Berry Ames still playing remarkable polo. That's my uncle. Rises. It's still remarkable that he plays polo at 66. Remarkable because he's 66. They always use the word remarkable about elderly people. And you thought... Miss Stewart a little disturbed hastily. I'm so sorry. Ames somewhat upset. You thought I was that old man. Oh, I never heard he was quite 66. So, you didn't see how I could be quite 66. Miss Stewart hastily with apparent seriousness in placating him. But wouldn't it be wonderful if you were? To be 66 and look only... What age do I look? Oh, let's not go into that. It might become mutual. I can't get over it. You thought I was my uncle. You must tell him about it. And then tell me sometimes if it upsets him, too. Ames mollified. Sometime. You think we might see each other again after tomorrow? Why not, if you think it would be pleasant? I should be... She is caught by a yawn and conceals it imperfectly. I should be very glad. Ames, sadly. Oh, you're sleepy. I'm not. I'm interested. I'm interested in everything you've been saying. I was never more interested in my life. Honestly? Sits. At least it's been quite a time since I've had as cheering things said to me as you've been saying. I like it. Could you stand some more? I think so. Then do let me see you again after tomorrow, will you? Yes. Could I come to Amity to see you sometime? Why, I think so. Could I come before long? If you like. I think I should like it more than I've ever liked anything in my life. Why, that's, that's saying quite a great deal, isn't it? I can't help it. It's the way I feel. Yes, but at these pleasant, quieter years you say you have arrived at, haven't you learned more caution? More caution than what? Than to say quite so much as you just did, and to an unknown woman. I tell you, you're not unknown. You've shown me, yes, just in the way you fed me, if you like. Yes, and in the dear pretty way you took this being cast away with me here. You've shown me you are the old-fashioned, perfect kind of woman. I thought had disappeared. Well, I found you. I don't want to let you go. My life has been getting so confoundedly lonely. I, well, why not? I don't know. You're a little indefinite, perhaps? It's a long time since I felt like this. 
and the reason I'm lonely's because fifteen or so years ago I didn't speak when something like this came over me. Instead, I went away to think it over, and another man spoke first. Miss Stewart, with a humour that fights with drowsiness and an inclination to take him seriously. You needn't be afraid of that now. Farming means a very retired life with me. No one else will speak while you retire to think it over. She closes her eyes for a moment. I don't want to think it over at all. Listen, do I seem to you the sort of man you could like pretty well? Miss Stewart looking up quickly. Oh, I think so. She closes her eyes for a moment again. Aims so impulsively as to be almost explosive. Well, if you'll let me hope something might come out of it, I'll be any kind of man you want me to be. Miss Stewart opening her eyes quickly. Aren't you a little susceptible, Mr. Ames? Does it look like it, to still be a bachelor at my age? But it struck me you were, almost, proposing to me just then. Well, I was. I am. Almost. Almost or quite. Just as you like, Miss Stewart. Miss Stewart smiling a little. Perhaps it had better be almost. If it's to be that way, almost a proposal, is there any chance of your almost thinking of it? Miss Stewart gently and smiling. Why, I might almost think of it sometime. Again the symptoms of drowsiness overtake her. Ames remorsefully. You are sleepy. I'm not. Ames rising. I ought to be ashamed, trying to keep you awake with a proposal of marriage. As he speaks, he places a satchel on the end of bench and rolls his overcoat over it for a pillow. Was that all you made it for? To keep me awake? You know better. Here, lie down. I'll cover you over. I won't take your overcoat. You'll need it. The satchel's a good enough pillow. No. It isn't. Lie down. Take your overcoat away, or I'll sit up all night. I will take it away. All right. When you lie down yourself, put your overcoat over you. Will you? If I need it. No. Promise me. I will. Miss Stewart lying down with her cheek against the satchel. Ah, that's... Ah. She sighs with satisfaction. Ames gently covers her over with her fur coat and stole. Then he discovers her muff. Here, this is a better pillow. He places it under her head. Thank you. You're very kind. She is silent, then says sleepily. I knew you were. Knew I was what? Kind. Who wouldn't be? He goes to the stove. Miss Stewart with her eyes shut. I had to be up at four o'clock and drive seventeen miles to get my train. I'd rather stay awake and listen to you. You'll forgive me for being so sleepy, won't you? Ames turns the damper on stove, smiling as he looks round. Yes, I'll forgive you. He takes his overcoat and spreads it on the second bench 
puts a suitcase for a pillow. Miss Stewart, in a sweet, drowsy voice with her eyes closed. Certainly didn't seem appreciative, going almost to sleep, when you were almost proposing. But I do appreciate it very much. You dear thing. I wasn't almost proposing. I was all proposing, and you know it. Well, it's very nice of you. I think I'm glad you are, but... But what? We don't need a light, do we? If you leave the stove door open. Ames goes up and snaps off the switch. There. A rosy glow from the stove door crosses the benches, falling upon the recumbent lady. There. That's better. Ames goes to the second bench. You'll put your overcoat over you? Yes. What have you got for a pillow? It's all right. A suitcase? It's plenty. Miss Stewart, without opening her eyes or lifting her head, pulls the muff from beneath her cheek and lets her cheek rest on the satchel. Then, not otherwise moving, she swings the muff behind her to him. What's that for? Your pillow. Take it. I won't. You will. Of course I won't. You will. <sighs> you do make me selfish. He takes the pillow, places it, and sits on the second bench, preparing to lie down and pull his overcoat over him. Miss Stewart in a very sleepy murmur. I'm sorry I thought you were your uncle. She is lying on her right side and she lifts her left hand over the back of the bench to him, the rest of her not moving. He takes it reverently, kisses it lightly. She brings the hand back and puts it under her cheek. I only thought so because the paper said he was so remarkable. I don't mind that now. Lies down on second bench. It would be too bad if you met some pretty very young thing after, after it was too late. Most men care more for early youth than they do for... Than they do for what? Than they do for anything. Is the muff all right for a pillow? I never had such a pillow before. Aren't you sleepy too? Yes. The truth is, I am. It seems strange, when I feel so much that's new to me, to be sleepy. Oh, no. We aren't a young couple at a college dance, getting engaged. No, of course not. But aren't we... almost... Rises and looks at her over the back of bench. I think you must go to sleep now. Yes, I will. He stretches himself on the bench. Are you at all sure? Yes, I am. I know what I say sounds very sleepy, and I am almost asleep, but my mind, you know. Yes? My mind's working just as clearly as ever, and I keep thinking you've said all this so, so suddenly. Perhaps you are a little susceptible Perhaps when you see some pretty young thing, you'll... you'll... No, I won't. 
Miss Stewart dreamily in a soft, almost contented voice, and smiling a little. Perhaps not. May I say just one last thing to you? It seems foolish, but it would be pretty lovely to me if you'd let me say it. Say what? May I say to you, good night, dear. I believe you might say it. Good night, dear. Her left hand goes up again. His own hand is seen above the back of the bench, clasping it. Then she returns it to her cheek. Good night, dear. There is quiet. The act drop descends for a few seconds and rises. Everything is as it was, except that the rosy glow from the stove has paled and a grey light shows outside the window. The clock marks 5.45. The light outside the window grows a little stronger. Distant trees just coming into new leaf on muddy hills are revealed there, an April landscape. The light continually grows stronger throughout the whole scene. A girl's voice is barely heard shouting in the distance, Hello there! Hello there! Then after a pause, a stamping is heard on the platform outside, as though someone stamped mud from his shoes. A quick sharp tread is heard. The knob of the door upright is fumbled. Then the door is opened and a girl of nineteen enters. She is distractingly pretty in spite of, or it may be partly because of, her general style and costume. She wears a soft sport hat, beneath which her thick bobbed hair is additionally coquettish. She has on a short overcoat, knickerbockers, green stockings and high lace shoes, the latter covered with mud, which has also splashed her stockings. She comes in briskly and goes down left, then halts short with a breathed exclamation as she sees the two sleepers. Well, for the love of Mike, this in a husky whisper. She stares. A light snoring comes from the second bench. She looks long at the first bench, smiles, then controls a tendency to laughter. Then she moves back to the second bench and looks at Ames. After this contemplation, she speaks again in the husky whisper. Pretty good looking, old bird, if you do snore. The snoring stops with a little snort. Ames coughs, waking himself. Suddenly he sits up, dazed, and stares at the girl. She chokes down an increasing tendency to mirth during their scene. Ames, confused. Oh, oh, how do you do? The girl, Florence. Shh, don't wake Aunt Isabel. After this, they both speak in husky whispers. Who? My aunt. She gestures widely to Miss Stewart. My Aunt Isabel, don't you know her? Ames rises and looks at Miss Stewart. Oh, yes, indeed. Well, I should think so. I'm her niece, Florence. Ames conventionally, but in a whisper. I'm glad to, uh... Shakes hands. A man, and I've been all night trying to get here in a car. He's back in the woods with it now, trying to get it out of a mud hole. We've had a hell of a night. I beg your pardon? It really was. Are you an old friend of hers? 
I hope to be. Rubbing his face and eyes with his hands. We'll take you with us when he gets the car out of the mud. No use to wake her up till it comes. No, it's cold, isn't it? Florence pointing to the stove. You might make the fire up if you can do it without waking her. I only need to turn the draft. I got up about two o'clock and put on some coal. Florence as he moves toward the stove. Cigarette? What? Got a cigarette? Oh. He hands her his case. She takes one. Light? He lights a match and holds it for her. She smiles at him with brazen coquetry, her hand on his as she lights the cigarette from the match. She makes a fuss about my smoking. Don't tell her, will you? She smiles again, her face not far from his. He looks thoughtful. No. The fire begins to pick up. Florence turns to Ames suddenly. How long you known her? What? How long have you known my Aunt Isabel? Yesterday. Florence, suddenly overcome with mirth. She lifts both hands in a gesture of, Oh, go away, and choking with laughter, slaps him with her two palms upon the shoulders. She is unable to control herself. She convulses, leaning against him, then clapping both hands over her mouth, runs spluttering to upright. At the door, she checks herself, speaks back to him huskily. I'll see if he's got the car out of the mud. Laughter breaks from her as she runs out of the door upright. Ames is bothered and a little fascinated. He glances at Isabel, then goes slowly to the door upright, looks out. He comes down, goes near the stove and stands, frowning thoughtfully. Isabel murmurs. She opens her eyes. They fall upon Ames without expression. Then she smiles slowly and speaks. I'm awake. Ames starts. Good morning. Good morning. What time is it? It's daylight. Did you, uh, sleep well? Yes, did you? Yes, I did. I was trying to stay asleep, but I thought, was the station master here just now? No, it was your niece. What? She stretches her hand to him. He comes quickly and takes her hand. She rises. You don't mean it. Somehow she found out you were here. She's been all night trying to get a car here, she said. Why the dear thing? Where'd she go? Ames moving toward the door upright with her. She went to see if... The door is flung open by Florence returning. It's coming! Comes down right. Florence! How'd you find me? They go to each other and embrace. We telephoned all over the world, where the wires weren't down, and this was the only place you could be. Florence, this is Mr. Ames. Right-o. We've had quite a chat. We'd better take him home with us, hadn't we? Goes back of first bench to centre. Isabel turning to Ames with a little tremulous self-consciousness at which she smiles herself. Will you? Ah, you're very kind. I... Why, of course we're not going to leave you here. It's only a forty-mile drive, and we won't get stuck by daylight. You'll never see breakfast in this hole. 
Well, as you're so kind. Of course you're coming. We'll make him, won't we, Aunt Isabel? I hope so. Aims awkwardly to Florence. Uh, well, since you're so hospitable... Florence slaps him on shoulder. Hospitable nothing. We don't see a new man person twice a year in our neck of the woods, except Johnny White, and we're used to him. I made the poor kid drive me, Aunt Isabel. She runs to the door and calls out. Yay, Johnny! Brazen hussies in boys' breeches. Wasn't that what you called them? Oh, but she's different. She's your niece. Yes, my great-niece. What? I beg your pardon? I forgot to tell you, she isn't my niece precisely. She's my great-niece. Florence's father wasn't... Ames rather dazed, but trying to conceal it. Your... she's your great-niece? Oh, yes. A young man appears in the doorway with Florence. Florence enters first and goes back of first bench to centre, looking at Ames. Come in, Johnny. He does so. He is a boy of about twenty, dressed for motoring and heavily stained with mud and grease. He carries a woman's fur coat over his arm. He smiles vaguely as he comes to take Isabel's hand. She goes on. It was lovely of you to drive all night through the mud to find me. Johnny grinning vaguely. Well, Florence wanted me to. And we all do what Florence wants, yes. This is Mr. Ames, Mr. White. Johnny goes to centre, behind first bench, tosses coat to Florence and shakes hands as she goes on. If you'll help us get our bags in the car. Yes, indeed. He picks up the bags, getting both arms full. Florence, with a sweet smile, gives the coat to Ames to hold for her. Isabel continuing smilingly. We ought to be home by seven. And there'll be food, Mr. Ames. Won't that be... She checks herself as she sees the care with which he is putting Florence into her coat and goes to Johnny left centre. She hands him her own coat, still smiling. Johnny, dear, if you'll... Johnny drops bags and holds coat for Isabel. Yes, indeed, Miss Stewart. Florence to Ames, right centre. I think you're a rogue. Ames laughing consciously and rather uncomfortable. Oh, what nonsense. Now if we can get the things into the car... Johnny and Ames pick up the bags and lunch basket. Ames gets into his overcoat... Isabel goes on. I think you'll have to let me sit by you, Johnny. Going home? I think you'll drive better. Yes, I'm glad to have you. Are we all ready? Johnny goes out upright with bags. Yes, I'm... Florence to Ames. Do you think you can entertain me for forty miles? I do. She runs out. Ames, right centre. This is very kind of you to take me in this way. I, uh, are you coming? Isabel, left centre, starts as if to go out, then stops and looks about her wistfully, yet smiling a little. I just wanted to remember what this room looks like, by daylight. Things change so then. She takes his arm and starts up left. I'll take your arm just till we get to the car, then you'll have Florence. 
As they go slowly up, she continues cheerfully. Yes, I forgot to mention it last night. Yes, she's my great-niece. It wasn't her father who was my brother, you see. It wasn't? Isabel cheerfully as they reach a point near the door and pause. No, it was her grandfather. Isabel takes a last rather wistfully smiling look about the room as she speaks, a little absently. Ames trying not to speak feebly. Her grandfather was? Florence enters door, takes Ames's arm with both of her hands. Aren't you coming? You're going to sit with me, you know. Well, I... He is rather bewildered, and Florence pulls him out through door. Johnny enters door and offers his arm to Isabel. Thank you, Johnny. Both exit. Curtain. End of Act One.